as we come now before the Word of God. If you're reading with me, it's no surprise now, I'll be in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2. It's Hebrews chapter 2. And as you turn there, would you please pray with me? Lord Jesus, as we come now before your word, would you help us to listen and to be good listeners so that we would not wander off into myths or strange things? Lord, would you guide us in all truth? Your word is truth. Help us now to listen and to believe. We ask your Spirit's guidance now and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Hebrews in chapter 2. I want to read here these first nine verses. So Hebrews chapter 2 will begin in verse 1. Therefore... We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him? For the Son of Man that you care for him, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present... We do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. This is the word of God. Now, before we begin sifting through and working on what the author is saying to us here, let me first mention that it's our practice here uh, during sermons to focus on a book of the Bible, reading through that, as opposed to uh, focusing on preaching about topics and finding verses that fit with that topic. And I think... That's good practice, but one of the tricky parts about preaching through a book of the Bible, at least for me, is determining what verses to begin and to end on. 
I mean, we know that we're trying to follow the author's point here, trying to follow his, his train of thought, but the authors of the Bible never give us nice, tidy bullet points, as much as we'd like to hear that. They're usually not dealing with just one topic at a time, and, and there's no clear start and stops to sections. Usually the ideas are kind of just flowing in and out of each other. So in the verses that I've chosen for us to read this morning, the next verses, we've, we've taken nine here at a time. And I think in these first nine verses of chapter two, there's probably material enough for two sermons. At least the author seems to be talking about two big things here. But I want to preach both of those sermons this morning. And... I want to talk about the reason why I've kept both of those sermons together as one. So I suppose maybe that's a third sermon there. Uh, so I hope uh, that you have uh, not made lunch plans and cleared out the rest of your afternoon. Get ready, you've got three sermons. I, I uh, am mostly kidding. Uh, I'll try to be mindful. These are not three full sermons. I'll try to be mindful of time, although I will say that if you are itching to get out of here because you've got better things to do, you should take that up with the Lord so that he'll work on your heart. At any rate, let's not waste a moment. We've got a lot of ground to cover here. First sermon. I think this is mostly these first four verses, verses one through four. So if we're to follow the author's train of thought to try to make sense of what he's saying here, I need you then to think with me as we're going along. So a sermon is not a cruise ship, as much as I might love cruise ships. Uh, a sermon's not a cruise ship, it's a rowboat. I need you to, to you know, stretch those muscles, get out your oar, dip it in the water, we'll do this together here. Um, so the first verse of chapter 2 starts by calling us to pay attention. He says we need to pay we need to pay closer attention so that we won't drift. And so I ask the question, pay closer attention to what? If you've been here the past few weeks, you know that uh, in the last chapter the author has just spent a long time putting out text after text after text to show that Jesus is better than the angels. That was his point in chapter 1. So now he says here in verse 2 of chapter 2 that the angels have declared a message. The author's assuming that he, we know what he's talking about. Uh, it was traditional, Acts chapter 7, Galatians 3 talks about this, that the angels were the ones who intermediated the law. They were the ones that actually gave the law, the Mount Sinai moment, the Ten Commandments, and the other things that came with them. So the message that the angels declared then was the law. And he says here that this message proved to be reliable. But if we transgress against that message, against the law, if we disobey the law, which we call sin, he says here that there will be a just retribution. It's a fancy word. A just retribution. In other words, there will be right and fitting punishment. 
So depending upon what laws were violated, that punishment might be some sort of payment to restore what had been taken. It might be that the person who violated the law was cut off from their people, and it might be so severe as death because of the violation of the law. Now, the author then takes that and compares that situation to Jesus, who is greater. And he says, now we need to pay attention to Jesus, closer attention to even Jesus, that Christ's message is greater than the law. That he's accomplished, he says, a greater salvation. And if we neglect Christ's message, that is an even greater sin. Which means that the punishment for that sin is greater. And what the author says then about it in verse 3 is chilling. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? This is a punishment worse than death. This is what the scripture calls the second death, or it goes by various names, the lake of fire, or as we most commonly hear it, hell itself. In the scripture, hell is a real place, a truly awful place, where the wrath of God is continually poured out upon sin. And those who are there continue to pile up their sins throughout eternity as the wrath of God continues to pour upon them forever. And as frightening as that reality is, it is almost more frightening to see how a person might arrive in that place. Because here he's not talking about people who spit in God's eye, necessarily. Or he's not talking about mass murderers, the Hitlers, the, you know, those nasty atheists. Um, as difficult as that might be, those all may be subject to the fires of hell if they're not uh, finding salvation in Jesus. Here, though, he's not talking about those people. You see who is subject to that. It's those who just drift away from Jesus. It's those who neglect such a great salvation. Jesus talks about this himself in a parable in Matthew. Chapter 22, you can turn there if you wish. I'll read a few verses here. Matthew chapter 22, verse 1. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And so he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. But they would not come. 
Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who were invited, See, I've, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered, everything's ready, come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treating them shamefully and killing them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. And he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. There are some in this parable who, in response to the invitation, are aggressively against it. They seize and kill the servants who send the message. But there are others who are passively against it. They paid no attention, and they minded their own business. They went back to their farms, and they went back to their jobs, and they did not come. Both of these groups were left out of the wedding feast. In fact, at the end of the parable, it's Described, they're described as being cast out into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. The author of Hebrews, and I want this as well, does not want that to happen to you. So he warns us shakes us. Pay attention. Listen here, because the danger is real. Do not let yourself drift away. Do not lie back and roll with the tide. If you've ever been to the ocean, you know that something about the waves is very comforting. It washes over us. It gives us a sense of peace and calm often, but if you If you lay in it and fall asleep, if you are not careful, those waves will carry you miles away. They will wrap around you until you are not able to escape. Now, I want to be clear here. In saying all of this, this does not mean, it does not mean that we save ourselves. The great salvation comes from Jesus. He is the only perfect sacrifice in our place. He is the one who takes upon himself the wrath for all sin, for all who believe. But it does mean that we should not neglect his salvation. Don't treat it lightly. Don't just assume that all is well. Don't just take advantage of it. But hold tightly to Jesus by faith and put your trust in him. I worked at a summer camp um, during one summer in college, and uh, they had a high ropes course. 
Have you ever seen one of those where it's about 30 feet up in the air and there's all these wires and you have a harness and you do all these kind of cool and very scary things? But the way uh, you'd go through all these obstacles and at the end, uh, someone who, who had gone through the high ropes course, there's a little platform and a wire and they clip you in, in the back, with a little carabiner, and you jump, and Superman down. After the fear of it got very exciting, and so it, people either hated that part or loved that part, but uh, I watched you know, all these campers over the summer, one kid after another, they'd go all of this, and it was very exciting. Uh, they'd jump, and, they, and they'd usually scream all the way, maybe laugh at the end, or maybe just be sweating. Um, but there was one kid I remember who got to that platform and without a word just leaned out right away and he was not clipped in. And the guy who was running the ropes course reached out and snagged the loop on his back and yanked him back. That camper had no idea how much danger he was in. He just assumed, since he'd seen so many go before him, that all would be fine, that he was ready, that he was somehow clipped in. This warning in Hebrews, out of love for us, is showing us just what's at stake. Because if we neglect to be clipped in here, there's not just broken bones. There's not even just death. There is a greater danger to be trapped in a death that will not die. To be lost in our sins forever as we're away from the salvation of Jesus for eternity. So pay attention. Do not neglect the great salvation of Jesus or you will not escape. Amen. There's the first sermon. Sermon number two. This is verses five through nine. This section then begins to talk about, if you look in verse five at the beginning of it, about the world to come. But it takes a very different tone than the first four verses took. So this sermon will sound different. The world to come here is not just heaven in the clouds. Uh, it, it, this is what scripture calls the new heavens and the new earth, when all creation is now restored in God's goodness. So the focus of these later verses is not just about the coming world, but who rules the coming world. And he starts off by saying, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. Okay, that makes sense. The angels are not in charge of the new heavens and the new earth, but you might expect the author to say, well, it's not the angels in charge, it's actually Jesus. But that's not what he says. Even though that's true in some sense, that's not his focus. He then goes on to quote from Psalm 8. You see it there in verses 6, 7, and 8? That's, this was our call to worship this morning. And it, where, here he talks about man and the son of man. In other words, all humanity, not just Adam. Man, all mankind was created a little lower than the angels in one sense. But he's also been crowned with glory and honor. 
and God has put everything under his, man's, feet. That God has put all of creation in subjection to man. It's all now in man's control. All this is calling all the way back to Genesis 1, in which man is made in the image of God to have dominion and to fill the earth and to rule as the Lord would have us reign in his world. So mankind then is made princes and princesses over all creation. And this will be restored in the new heavens and the new earth, but we do not see it fully in effect right now. I mean, if we look at the way that mankind rules and reigns now, or at least the way we try to, we've done a pretty poor job of reigning. We've filled our oceans with trash and our skies with smog. We have wiped out large populations of animals and plants in order to fit our own comfort. We've treated each other like commodities or tools to be used or misused. We cater to the rich and we disregard the poor and everyone does what is right in his own eyes. All this, by the way, is the reason why we have come to mistrust power. It's not because power on its own is bad. We were made to rule, and there are good situations in which we must rule. But because we love our sin, we use power for our own good at the expense of others. And we hurt people with our power. We've chosen our own ways over God's ways and, and turned the world into mud, and now we wallow in it. And if you long for something different than that, as I do for myself, for us, you're not alone. The scripture says creation itself is longing for the new heavens and the new earth. It is looking forward to the day when everything is set right. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 8. He begins in verse 18. He says this, I consider that the sufferings of this present time aren't worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. In the midst of this mess, as we see it, there is a note of hopefulness, a longing for the day in which our bondage will be set free. Jesus, then, is the gateway to this renewed glory of creation. Jesus made himself man for a little while, lower than the angels, truly human, to reclaim man's 
crown in the goodness it was created to be. In order to do that, then, Jesus had to break the crown first. To conquer sin and to pay the penalty for our abuses of power, to suffer and taste death for us all. He did that. Jesus then has reclaimed the crown of glory and honor to now renew humanity who will then rule and reign with him forever. And if you are a believer in Jesus, that's your future. We know if we, if we neglect Christ's great salvation... That will not be the case. But if we embrace his sacrifice for sin, then by his power and grace in our lives and our union with him, fight against sin in our lives, make war on the sin in our own hearts so that he will transform our hearts and our lives, then he is making us into the good princes and princesses over the world to come that we were made to be. So Christian... Raise your head, all you sons and daughters of glory, and receive the crown of Christ. Amen. There's the second sermon. Now the third. Why have I put these verses together? Both sections, in some ways this makes sense, both sections are talking about similar things. One is talking about the path of those who neglect Christ, that there is in store for them just retribution, eternal darkness, a wrath that they cannot escape. And the other describes a very different path, a path for those who were in Jesus, which leads to a crown of honor and eternal reign with Christ over all creation. But the reason why I wanted to take these together is not just because they are about similar subjects. It's because Scripture so often puts these things together. And this is frequently the approach of Hebrews to put them very close together. We'll see in Hebrews as we continue to read through both warnings and wooings. Hebrews warns us and it Woos us, it warns us so that we'll see the holiness of God, the seriousness of God, the justice of God, and then it turns and woos us so that we'll see the glories of God, the love of God, the grace of God. And both of these warnings and wooings flow out of the goodness of God. As we continue reading through Hebrew over the coming weeks and months, we'll see the author alternate back and forth between warning and wooing his hearers. And that's because one of the main goals of the book of Hebrews 
he says by the end, is to exhort or urge his hearers to hold fast to Jesus. And so in order to encourage us to hold fast to Jesus, he needs to tell us the whole truth. We need to feel the dangers in store for us if we drift from Jesus. And we need to feel the desire of wonders in store for us if we are conformed to Jesus. Both of these things are working to draw us close to Christ so that we'll come to honor him, to revere and worship him, to love him and to give him thanks. One of the greatest challenges or difficulties of preaching, at least for me, is that I have to speak to many of you at once for a set amount of time. And I am aware that some of us need to be warned at this moment. Perhaps you are a Christian who has begun to drift. You've been taken in by the pleasures, by the cares, by the pressures of life, and they are carrying you away. Perhaps you're not even a Christian at all. And you may think you love Jesus just because you go to church and try to be good. If this is you, you should be warned. And yet at the same time, I know that there are some of us who need at this moment to be wooed. Like a valentine or a lover, perhaps you are a Christian who needs to be reminded of the hope of your precious calling. To see the sheer scope and magnitude of Christ's love for you and work in you. Perhaps you're not a Christian, but you still need to see the glorious gift of eternal wonder that you may be missing. I don't even pretend to know who is who. I barely have a thought on it where each of us are at any particular moment. And so during this time, I just try to say what God has said in his word, to call us to hear it, and then to trust that God's spirit will apply it to each of your hearts. But to all of us, to every one of you, no matter where you are right now, by the power of God, pay attention to what you have heard. Don't miss either the warnings or the wooings 
of the word of God so that you will be built up in maturity in Jesus, so that you will gain a heart of wisdom, so that one day you might be crowned with glory and honor and the great salvation that comes from Jesus. Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord, we trust you in this moment. Would you comfort hearts that need to be comforted? And would you startle hearts that need to be startled? Lord, would you help all of us not to drift? Lord, be our anchor when we doubt, when we fear, when we lack courage. Help us to find our safety and security in you. You are the Lord, and we trust you, and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.